you have to adopt this because if you don't adopt it, then you're paying every employee 50,000 or 80,000 or whatever that number is. And you're just going to become uncompetitive. Hmm. That's, that's the real bottom line, you know, truly bottom line of your P and L answer to this. You have to learn to adopt it because humans are not going to be competitive enough. And then here's another fear conversation around this. Well, what happens when AI eliminates all the jobs? That's what I was saying. If you're an employee or you're a business owner or whatever, as a business owner, um, I hate to say it this way, but if you could eliminate, you know, 40% of your employees that aren't producing and get more efficient, you should be thinking about that as a business owner. As an employee, you should be thinking about AI is going to make me a better employee. Because if I can focus on like this AI that I'm talking about is just setting calls. So as an employee, you know, if you're in sales, you should be looking at AI. If your company isn't, you should be looking at it because if you can get more, if you can get more phone calls set by AI, that makes you a better employee. So we're looking at this all wrong and, and everybody should be looking at this from employees all the way to business owners and investors. Welcome back to the King's Table podcast. Check, check. Make sure everyone can hear me. Um, good to see you guys. Uh, we have a very, very fun episode today. Lots of topics to talk about. Uh, I'm very sad today. I'm sad. I'm sad because Mooch is in here. I'm not. We're yeah, better without it's, him. It's like yeah, the it's Band of Brothers. Day. We're missing We're missing one. <laughs> um, but here we are. We have Maddie Atchison, the hero of hospitality, uh, looking like a stud as he always does. Man, Maddie, you look super comfortable. That jacket, I'm going to steal it from you. And it's of course, and the sage. That's right. The sage himself, Mike Ayala. Um, and I'm Ashish Nathu. Good to see you guys. Unfortunately, we're missing Aaron Amuchastegui this week. We have a lot of fun things to talk about. But before we do that, uh, we promised last week to, to shout out um, some of the people that are engaging with us on our YouTube channel. And remember, if you were listening, the cost of listening is to share it with somebody that may get value from this content or the podcast. So I hope you guys are really enjoying the content. Um, but we're getting some really great engagement on our YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw this, but this Fire Sun guy thinks that he can do more pull-ups than all of us combined. And Mikey, I saw your response. You know, I think I can't do four. I think I can maybe do two. But Maddie's doing 1,800, so he beats everybody. And we have some really great engagement. Um, did he you know, say, Debbie, hold on, before I, before you move on from that, I mean, that's a direct <laughs> challenge. So we can't, we can't just hold up, hold, hold up. You don't just yeah, skate don't over Don't you challenge one. the panel, huh, Mr. Fireson? Do don't you challenge the panel? Well, you know, who is this guy first off? Is he like David Goggins pull-up status? or Because well, I do the Murph every week, once a week. So I'm, I'm hitting ooh, pull-ups about damn. at least four to five days a week. Well, here's here's the thing, Maddie. I don't know if you saw the comment, but he didn't he didn't like your comment about don't turn into a soy boy on us. That that's what that's what oh, this so was about. He's a soy boy, and that's what triggered him. Now <laughs> well, yeah, I just want to say I just want to say that we may have our first troll. Okay, and it could be very cool because 
in in fairness, he might not be a troll. He might he might just not have loved Maddie's comment about soy <laughs> he boys. He might just I, be a big old wimpy soy boy that doesn't have oh, a profile man. picture that wants to challenge somebody to a contest. Oh baby. But That's he doesn't right. want to show so, his face. Ma so Maddie, they, I, I I actually I threw it back. I said, I you know, I don't know about that because I can do four or five and Ash is good for four and Aaron could probably do six and Maddie could do eighteen hundred. I'm doing a couple hundred at least every week. I don't know about uh, 1,800, but um, let me see this guy's profile picture, and then I'll see if I want to challenge him or not. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, for whoever this guy is, it's it's all in love. If you weren't we're trying teasing. to be a troll, of course we're teasing. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying to get more. No, we're trying to get more comments. That's why we're teasing you, Mr. Firestone. We also have Debbie Prince. Debbie has been listening to the podcast for a few weeks. Been super great at leaving some of the comments. Um, she actually wants us to talk about, uh, some manufactured home concepts. And she also was commenting about, um, we talked about the aging of China workers, which we'll talk about today. And also what does that mean for the aging population in the U S when it comes to plumbers, electricians and other trade jobs. So great questions, Debbie, we will try to touch on those things today. Um, Cody cross real estate one solid episode. Looking forward to the next. Thanks so much for listening, Cody. And um, this guy, I think his name is, let me see if I can pull it up here, Lee Stinson. Thanks so much, Lee. Um, you also left a comment. Uh, I, love, I love what you were talking about. You and Maddie were engaging here about some mobile home construction and pre-manufactured pre homes. And also made a statement that most elections, the front runner in the primary doesn't eventually win the nomination. So could be fun to watch. Thanks so much for leaving a comment. But just we have a lot of great topics. Um, before we get into a bunch of topics, you guys doing good? How's life? How's everything going? Doing good, man. I'm. Uh, you know what? You know what I was thinking about this morning is just um, just the comment. Like, don't compare your year one to somebody else's year twenty. I just love that statement. But you know, I I, I just I've just been like thinking about just different seasons and all there's all this conversation going on around, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And when I look backwards at my, you know, there's seasons where I was loving what I was doing, but there's seasons like, like I'm in right now where it's like, you know, we're building and you're putting infrastructure in place and you've got employee challenges. And we've talked about all of this, but I'm, I'm just like, if there's one thing that I want to say that I'm thinking about and, and keeping me in a good headspace is, you know what, it's not always fun. Um, in fact, like if we're not challenged, I think we have to really, you know, question ourselves. Are, are we working enough? Are we doing enough? Um, and you know, I've got the podcast investing for freedom. So I'm all about time freedom and all of that, but I don't think we'll ever have full balance. So I'm, I'm do, I'm in a good headspace, even though I'm busier than I've probably been in, you know, 15 years. So. I echo that sentiment. I, I wrote, I have a, there's something called shower notes and it's like a little, little, little pad and pencil that you can put in your shower and I always, you know, write down little, little notes while I'm in the shower, you know, my, my billion dollar ideas uh, that have never come to fruition yet. But that being said, um, there's always good reminders in my notes that I go through and to echo your sentiment, Mike, uh, my number one line on my shower notes that I see every single morning is do more hard things. I know that when I do more hard things, even though sometimes you do them kicking and screaming, 
it really brings out the best, best in me. And there, I think there's people that hard stuff brings out the best of them, even though it's very challenging. And then there's some people that just fold in hard times. Um, but I've realized that about myself. I'm actually more dangerous and better when I am getting after it and doing Mikey, hard is stuff. That you? So that is the focus for 2024. I love it, man. You know, for me, I, I am in a season, we talked a little bit about this offline post the last episode is, you know, sometimes Mike, we do have to just embrace the suck. And I think if it was easy, most people would do what we were doing. Right. But I'm in a season where I got to figure out what to cut. I got to do less things. Um, and, and we got to figure out which footballs we got to grab and run down the field. But it's definitely um, a season where I can't do too many things and got to figure out which, which things I'm going to really cross the finish line with. So I'm in a season of figuring out what do I have to say no to? And uh, that's never easy because you got to say no to some babies that you created. Right. And so, um, but that's, that's all good. That's part of it. I was just talking with Mike right before we started recording too. I thought this would be interesting and, and kind of ties into something that Maddie brought up as well. You know, I got a, I saw on an Instagram, some ad and I wanted to, I was curious through to see the funnel, but there, uh, there was a private equity firm through Instagram selling shares of SpaceX, right? And obviously SpaceX is a privately traded company, so it's not public. You can't just buy the shares. So I was like, okay, this is very interesting. So I click on it and, it, and there's an entire funnel designed for investors completely with AI. And so it schedules, you know, you fill out this little form, it sends out you a prompt, uh, it communicates to you with documents, it schedules a call. There was a person that actually got on the phone with me for about 15 minutes and I was just curious. So I was like, okay, I was asking a bunch of questions. But then the rest of it after that even, it's all AI. The person was a junior, like didn't honestly know too much, was just probably reading from a script and saying, well, this is the price and this is the valuation. And that's all really I know. The rest of it is in the information. They sent me an email. All the information in the email was sort of generic. And, you know, Mikey, we were talking about it too, is when does AI take, you know, basically rid people of sales roles and just, it becomes a volume game. And um, I really feel like there's something here, but what happens when everybody is doing it. And Maddie, you know, maybe we can pull up your IG post a little bit later. But um, I thought that was super fascinating too, about just like what happens when we just keep investing in AI and not in humans. So Maddie, what are your thoughts? And, and uh, Mikey, are you doing this in your sales funnel in any way? There are some amazing things that are, you know, going to come out of AI. And obviously there's some things that we have to be very aware and, you know, with good, there's always dark. That's the duality of life, you know? And I think that I am very engaged in AI right now and how we can apply it in our business and enhance our productivity. And I mean, I literally have an AI channel just for me and my kids. And when my kids ask me a question, I go, let's ask ChatGPT and I'll get mm. on. And I'll literally allow my kids to engage and talk with AI. And they'll ask whatever questions they want. The other day, Evie was asking about why um, some fruits have seeds and some don't. It is amazing the ways that you can use it. I mean, when we're at dinner, 
will go, give me five really fun, interesting topics and questions to ask my nine and my seven-year-old that'll create connection and engagement. And, and so there's so many great things about it, right? But at the same time, and I know you'll pull this this clip up. Yeah, Tim, pull this link yeah. up because I think it's really cool the way that Will I Am said this, if you could pull it up. Biggest concern, investments on AI to make machines smarter. There's no limit to the amount of money that's been pumped into it. The investment in HI to make human smarter, human mm. intelligence, <clears throat> that's just sad. It's sad that we're going to live in a world right around the corner where machines will be more articulate, analytical, critical thinking, banter, ability, um, <laughs> contextual, deep understanding. While we have resorted to short tweets, emojis, memes and stickers <laughs> <laughs> so good that's so good it's so true it's easier to give you a, a an emoji like this than to talk i love it mike right? what's going on are you doing this in your business in any way well I, I think anybody that's not thinking about this i mean even with all the negatives which you know, there's a lot of fear around, around this stuff. I mean, you even said it earlier, like, you know, replacing jobs and, and people are wondering, you know, how their jobs are going to play out, but the best of the best don't have to worry about that. And if you're thinking about this future through that lens, then you're thinking about it all wrong because it's the people that are saying, how are we going to, number one, I'll start with like business owners, business owners that are not um, or even investors that aren't, you know, staying on top of AI, figuring out, hey, how do I analyze more deals? How do we, how do we get things more efficient? And even as an investor, you should be happy, uh, you know, like what Ashish was saying that like these companies that like this resale or this private equity group that's dealing with mm -hmm. SpaceX, we should be happy that they're trying to get more efficient because they can get us more information in a faster way. And yes, there can be some downsides to this. Um, I was actually listening to a podcast on marketing secrets and, and the guy actually said, it's amazing how something that's so dumb as AI can, can simultaneously, we're worried about it killing us. And mm -hmm. so there is a duality that we have to think about with all of this. But again, as business owners and investors, if you're thinking about it from a fear standpoint, or if you're an employee and you're thinking about it from a fear standpoint, we need to shift that mindset because just like many things in the past, you know, we talk a lot about debt and there's been this common theme, like, does it matter? It doesn't really matter what we think. It doesn't really matter if we love the fact that the entire world is based on debt. It doesn't matter if it's fair or not fair. It's happening. And if we don't learn the rules of money, you're going to get left behind. Well, it's the same thing with the rules of AI. So if you're one of those employees or a business owner that's not thinking about this or adopting it, um, you're going to get left behind and you're going to get run over by the companies that are utilizing it. So to answer your question, Ash, um, I'm working right now, I'm vetting two different um, opportunities, if you will, uh, for implementing AI in our call setting. And, and, and both of these platforms are just freaking amazing. And the results that they're seeing, so when I say call setting, you get a lead from an investor, whether it's your website, whether it's Facebook ads, wherever you're getting your leads from, that AI bot, steps in and starts having an email or text. I shouldn't say, or, or I, should, I should say, and, and conversation, right? 
Yeah. So they, they, the bot sends out email and text, and then it automatically knows which method the investor prefers. Because if they're responding on text, then the bot starts having a conversation with them and it gets smarter and smarter as it goes. And when the bot goes off the rails and says something crazy, you just change the back end, you know, conversational languaging with it. And, you know, this is overwhelming for business owners because we're focused on you know, our operations and our vision and our employees and all of that. But the good news is, um, just like Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan talked about in Who Not How, this is a great Who Not How moment where we need to go find companies that are already building this and are doing it. You don't have to figure it all out on yourself or on your own. One of the companies that I'm talking to right now, it's a $10,000 implementation, and then it's $2,000 a month. And here's the crazy, the other one's even cheaper. Because I'm already using the other company, there's no implementation fee. Um, I've got an agency that's you know running all of our ads and CRM and backend and everything. And because we're already utilizing them and we're on an agency agreement with them, it doesn't cost me anything to set the structure up. It integrates with our CRM. And then it's a $1,500 or $2,000 a month management fee. But when you think about that, one bot can handle 10 to 15,000 communications a month. There's yeah. no... There's no, there's no you would need 10, you would need 10 employees that are like eight, like all-star A performers to manage that may, more. You would need more lead, you would need more employees than that. So even if you have VAs that are, you know, whatever it is, um, you'd need you'd need a hundred VAs to probably do that. And they wouldn't do as good of a job. The early beta testing on this stuff shows that there's about a five percent off the rails where the bot says something crazy, and then you just have to reprogram it. 5% is not that bad. The human error element, and again, the bringing it back to the fear component, we have all these fears around it. Well, what if the bot says something stupid? Well, how many times have you had an employee say something stupid? <laughs> Especially like a new employee 5%. when you're training. More than 5%. Yeah, when you, Harvard put out a, a, a business study, and I've quoted this before, that says it takes eight months for an employee to really figure out their job. It, it'll take this bot no time once you get it implemented to figure out their job. So like if you go get to a call level where you're managing 500 calls a month and then you want to push to a thousand, you would have to hire a new employee and the training on that would be 90 days. And even then they're going to say something stupid. So mm -hmm. this whole fear that we have around it, like, well, what if the bot says something dumb? Well, what if the person knows that it's a bot? How is a person... An employee can say something stupid, a bot can say something stupid. So we need to get past this fear around it. And nobody's claiming that it's perfect, but the reality is if you don't get ahead of this and you don't adopt it early, you're gonna get left behind on this entire- um, You think this is a this, trend? Mikey, you think this is a trend? You think this is here to stay? I mean, at some point, you're right, you're an early adopter. At what point does just everybody have to do this in order to play and then, you know, I, instead of getting five conversations a month, that's by AI. Now everyone's adopters. Now I got a thousand, uh, you know, and I'm all kinds of lists everywhere and I'm tech being texted everywhere. And so at what point does it have diminishing returns? And, or do you think it's something that is unique enough where it just creates a bigger opportunity for a, a more broad audience to engage in these things? Because now you just have frequency and people can get in or, or buy into opportunities at lower increments. So like, how does this progress? Well, there's th this conversation is kind of that question is like fragmented in two. And what I'll say first is that we were talking about this off camera, but 
there's a day coming where instead of us getting blasted with, you know, 10 texts a week, we're going to get blasted with a thousand texts a week. And so that's one part of the conversation. Um, AI is going to become so efficient at communicating with our clients that, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that's scared that it's going to dilute, not, yeah. not dilute for our own business, but we're just going to get so bombarded, you know, by information that it's going to get more challenging to find those leads. But the other side of that argument, which I think is the key thing that we've got to focus on, it's going to force us to be better. And there's that old saying, when the tide goes out, you'll see who's swimming without their shorts on. Mm. Um, this is it. You have to adopt this because if you don't adopt it, then you're paying every employee 50,000 or 80,000 or whatever that number is. And you're just going to become uncompetitive. Mm. That's, that's the real bottom line, you know, truly bottom line of your PL answer to this. You have to learn to adopt it because humans are not going to be competitive enough. And then here's another fear conversation around this. Well, what happens when AI eliminates all the jobs? That's what I was saying. If you're an employee or you're a business owner or whatever, as a business owner, um, I hate to say it this way, but if you could eliminate, you know, 40% of your employees that aren't producing and get more efficient, you should be thinking about that as a business owner. As an employee, you should be thinking about AI is going to make me a better employee because if I can focus on like this AI that I'm talking about is just setting calls. So as an employee, you know, if you're in sales, you should be looking at AI. If your company isn't, you should be looking at it because if you can get more, if you can get more phone calls set by AI, that makes you a better employee. So we're looking at this all wrong and, and everybody should be looking at this from employees all the way to business owners and investors. <clears throat> Maddie, any final thoughts before we move on to the next topic? No, I mean, uh, I, it just kind of solidifies what Mike is saying. I think the people who are, are leaning in and using it as a tool versus looking at it as a threat, as an op, you know, and, and how much of an opportunity this can be. Every single one of my employees is required to use ChatGPT every day. Um, I mean, from email and copy and marketing to building out backend funnels and automations to, you know, getting certain checklists and meeting agendas and systems documented. I mean, it's unbelievable how much it's honestly transformed our team. Um, I was just on my accountability call this morning with, um, with my group and uh, one of the guys just got back from Necker Island and he is not a, you know, super, super AI guy um, and kind of an early adopter. He said there was a guy there that was an insurance broker and his company was doing, I think, you know, more, I think it was like four or $5 million a year in, in sales. Um, he implemented this, a similar type of process of what we're talking about. They've got AI that essentially is taking their presentations and breaking it up into, I think, like 300 pieces of content in their seminars. And then based on the attention that that drives, they've got AI essentially setting appointments and scheduling, then taking the calls. Long story short, this guy is 61 years old. He embraced AI and technology and his business that did four and a half million dollars the year prior is going to do $18 million this year. 
And so just little things like that, right, of the people who are going, let me see how I can use this as a tool and an advantage to elevate my service, to reach more people, to make a bigger impact. The, the lens in which he is engaging with that AI is an abundant and positive one versus a scarcity and a fearful one. And so I think Mike just pointing that out, it's very important to make sure that, you know, your intention and your approach with how you engage with these things, they're going to um, dictate how successful you are with these tools or in these spaces. So just be aware of that. Mm. I love it. Let's pivot. Um, and maybe, maybe this is connected. AI is going to put a bunch of people out of work, but you know, it's a sad article that we found on AP news. Um, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you, but we have the highest homelessness in America than we've ever had. Um, the numbers are just staggering the homelessness growth in America. Um, maybe touch on this and, and tell us what's going on here. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to dig into this and get your guys' thoughts on it. But I remember um, when I was in strategic coach, there was a guy there that was an actual, he was a pretty successful developer in California. And he had this huge passion of, um, he wanted to build centers for homelessness. And I think there's this, again, there's two sides to this coin. Um, and I used to fall in the camp of like, um, you know, what, why should why should that be our issue? But as I've thought about this more and seeing what a problem it's becoming, um, and I'm I'm far from socialist, so I'm not saying that you know we need to take care of people that just want to sit on the couch and and do nothing. But at the same time, when you look at the challenges that we face as a country, something has to be done. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when I come bring back to this guy in strategic coach. He was investing and raising a ton of capital to solve homelessness. And I think the real differentiator in this conversation is if the government would stay out of that, I think there's enough people that would hmm. um, rally around it and actually solve the problem. So I want to make hmm. that statement because I'm not saying, you know, we should move to a socialist um, economy or, or the, you know, a socialist um, country. But at the end of the day, I think guys like that that were passionate about, you know, helping people. Yes, he's a developer. Yes, he was raising capital. Yes, he's probably a capitalist. And there's enough people that would donate to his causes if we weren't paying so much in taxes. So I, I don't want to derail us there, but I, I just wanted to set the frame for, you know, the lens that I'm thinking through. Mm -hmm. I think if the government would stay out of the way on some of this, people with good hearts would would take care of some of this. But the thing that I've realized is, you know, this is a major problem and it's not just lazy people. It's not just alcoholics. It's not just drug addicts. Um, there's mental health issues. There's so many things going on. And where I want to pull it together for the audience is just seeing, you know, maybe some potential opportunities. Like what are ways, what are ways that, you know, we could actually, the government is going to get involved in this and people, there's more and more people talking about solving this problem. So even just purely from a capitalist perspective, I think we need to keep it on our radar because something has to be done. Number one, we owe it to our fellow, you know, American to do what we can. And just like investing in real estate has so many depreciation and tax benefits. I bet you, you're going to see more and more funds popping up like this guy that was in strategic coach that was doing that as an investor, you can actually invest in. It's a charitable foundation 
that's also making money on the real estate side that has depreciation benefits. So I think we just need to keep this on our radar because it's becoming a bigger issue, number one. And number two, I think you're going to see some opportunities. And I have a Instagram clip that I want Tim to show in a few minutes. Tim, you don't need to go there yet. We'll see what the other guys have to say about this. Um, but I think even just within, Ash, you kind of transitioned this within not just AI, but um, construction efficiencies, whether it's printing homes or pre-manufactured stuff, there's going to be so many efficiencies that bring the cost of construction down that I think we just have to keep this on our radar. Maddie, why don't you go? I mean, I think that, man, this is a loaded subject. Um, yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, a lot of moving pieces to this. And I, at, at the end of the day, I don't think housing affordability is the main issue to point at. I think it's a component and a variable in the equation, no doubt. And it's, you know, hit people at different stages of hardship. Um, but I think there's a much deeper issue here at the root of this, which a lot of it has to do with, with drugs and, and mental health. I had a good, good friend of mine that um, was the, the head of, of Sutter Mental Health here in Sacramento. Sutter, Sutter Health is a, is a big healthcare system here. And um, a, a, they do a ton of studies, a ton of outreach. They work with a ton of social programs throughout California. And they have had more resources thrown at homelessness. And we've seen more mini camps pop up. We've seen more tiny home communities pop up. We've seen more campuses pop up to try and provide ecosystems and housing and resources for these individuals. And what she told me was at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to trying to rehabilitate somebody through, very um, challenging times if they have a mental issue or a drug problem, the success rate of those individuals getting back on their feet is almost zero. So I think the discussion is, you know, more so not it's not, personally, I don't think it's a housing issue. A lot of these people mm. are, are taken to places that give them housing, give them hot water, give them a square you know, meal, and those individuals go right back to the street. Now, I'm not saying one size fits all. I think there's a ton of social programs out there that help the people that really do have a handout and are looking to get back on their feet or looking to get back into the workforce. But I, I think the majority of those individuals aren't um, looking for that. and. It was kind of crazy because I'm a human being and I care about people. And yet I'm also, um, I'm, I'm not going to force somebody to come to water if they don't want to drink. And so I think that I was having this conversation with a couple buddies of mine the other day. And, and, and one of the guys, he kind of said a statement that was like kind of brash and shocked me. And he's like, we just need to lock them up and put them in, in jail and in psych wards. That's literally what they did back in the day. And it is literally what solved. If you go back statistically, I looked it up. I was like, this, there's a lot of, I don't know if that's adding up to me. And when they took people to psych wards and locked these individuals up, not only were their communities safer, but these individuals actually had a much higher probability of rehabilitation and getting mm -hmm. back on a path that was productive and suitable to society. So it's a tough topic. 
I feel for a lot of the people that, you know, really don't want to be homeless and they're facing hard times. And I know there's a lot of programs out there that can help people, but I think there's a much deeper seated issue here that is not just around affordability and a lack of housing. Um, Ash, I'll, I'll jump in on that. So I, I want to, I want to, I, I, I resonate with what Maddie said there. I'm not, I'm not in any way advocating. Well, I'm just trying to think what Island you could, you know, buy to, to put these people on, but um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, what I'm, what I'm getting at for our audience and investors is just paying attention to it. And I'll give you a couple. So even the, so the government is involved in it and, and my statement on, you know, if the government would stay out of it, when it's purely around a mental health issue and and people that don't want to change, I agree with you. You can't lead a horse to water. So I'm not advocating for that. But here's an example. So my sister um, is one of the directors at a a place in Bellingham, Washington called Lydia House. And I've had a lot of conversations with her about this. It was started by, I can't remember the actor's name, but Lydia House was started by an actor his mom raised him. They were like an abusive family. Um, she just really struggled. And so he grew up with nothing and then he became successful. And so he started Lydia House and they raise a ton of money every year from private um, donors. And here's what's cool about this model. So they raise a bunch of money from private donors and then they team up with investors and they place these single moms that have drug addiction, they've been through drug court, those kind of things. They place them in housing that Lydia House guarantees. They guarantee repairs, they guarantee rent. Um, they have government backing from the city of Bellingham that also helps fund some of that. And so I'm just, I, I'm opening up those types of thoughts around homelessness. And so even if it's, you know, an office building in San Francisco, that the government gives, and this hasn't happened yet, but I can almost guarantee you um, things like this are going to start happening where it becomes a bigger issue. So if the government guarantees a loan on a building that you can go convert and you turn it into a homeless center and the government guarantees payment, investors, I know that sounds scary. Here's another example. So I have a good friend that started buying single family homes and turning them into rehab facilities. And there's a company that will guarantee the loan and they guarantee the, the, the company pays the rent and then they, they do halfway houses. And so there's just a lot of opportunities starting to pop up in these types of areas that I think we just need to be paying attention to. So I'm not saying um, that, you know, the homeless thing kind of just triggered the conversation and I'm not saying, you know, you can't, you can't help a drug addict that doesn't want help, mm. but if you've got companies out there like these rehabilitation places or like Lydia House that are going to guarantee you rents and you don't have to worry about, you know, finding tenants and all of that, it might be something that we want to consider on the lower price point of affordable housing. Just like manufactured home communities, it's serving a specific need. It's serving a specific demographic, which I lived in one. I lived in a one bedroom, one bath, 1976 home with a brother and a sister and a mom and a dad, five of us. So I'm not like, you know, I didn't come from wealth and, and this wealth guy trying to, you know, talk about what we can do to save the poor. I'm just saying there might be some opportunities in this. So, 
Yeah, I think <clears throat> I, I love this topic. I think you guys are kind of gnawing at the right stuff, but you're you're right that there's a multiple things going on here. You know, Maddie mentioning the drug addiction component of homelessness is it's like a whole other one ball of wax. In this article that Mike put in the chat, it says that the majority of the homelessness that is being caused is because most people in America live paycheck to paycheck and that they're one family life crisis away from not being able to pay their mortgage and the high cost of housing is uh which we all had know and experience in in post covid world um is what's causing this kind of issue where people just can't you know maybe their car breaks down or maybe they're having a health issue or something happens and they got some big bills and they have to foreclose and and Aaron would have probably a lot of insight on this and where is that coming from but that's what this article is saying and and I also think it's really fascinating um because the government does have a lot to do with how easy it is to produce housing. And here in California, it is all, it is it's cost prohibitive, right? Mm -hmm. To do hotel yep. projects or home projects and just build housing. Texas it's easier, maybe Arizona it's easier, but the government has to get involved in opening up the compliance and regulatory issues in just getting the ability to build more. I was listening to the PBD podcast with Glenn Beck. I don't know if you guys heard about this. And I'm going to get a little conspiracy theorist, but I'm just repeating what they said. And, you know, they were mentioning that about 8 million immigrants are coming over in the last three to four years into the United States. 8 million is more than the population of Alabama. So we've basically added uh, an illegal population that is larger than the state of Alabama, right? And so what they're talking, what they were talking about is there's, um, there's obviously issues. There's a few issues that are stemming into this, right? Number one is you're putting all these people often coming across Texas and you're putting this quantity of human beings into the voting population. And most of these pop people are not red, they're blue often, right? The second, and so you're you're basically changing the demographics of the population, the voting population in a red state. Now you imagine that Texas now goes blue. That's a huge win, and and so it kind of comes to question. I know I know I'm being a little controversial here, but like it comes to question of why can't we solve this problem? You know, we we talked about on the podcast here is like follow the money, follow the power, follow the influence. What is in it for the people that are allowing these things to happen? There was a conversation that happened about, and and I'm not promoting this. It's actually, I think it's pretty unethical. But what they were doing was they were giving all of these illegal immigrants land for free in Texas. I think it's just right outside of Houston. Really fascinating concept. So they were giving pretty much for like a hundred bucks. You could buy a plot of land. You come as an illegal immigrant. You share your paperwork. And you sign some guarantee, like a loan, at like a 15, 20% interest rate. And 30 to 35% of the people were defaulting. And so they were doing this movie about how people were trying to, Glenn Beck was producing this movie about this owner who was doing this business. So it's a money printing machine to, to exploit this problem. Not really, Mike, what you're talking about is almost take it, you know, 
build a business opportunity that is productive and help solve this problem. It's almost to exploit the problem. And so I think this is a big issue um, with the amount of people coming across the border. And I mean, you, you see the articles now, all the states are fighting. They're sending people back and forth from each other. I mean, it kind of is a mess. The, the drug problem is a much more complicated problem above my pay grade. But I think there's a component in this that is solvable through opening up the ability to create more affordable housing, be quicker development, you know, do um, uh, the manufactured housing, things like that. So just a fascinating situation. And there's a lot of complexity in here. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I think it, it yeah, ties ahead, into what you just kind of talked about. I don't necessarily know the government wants us to solve these problems. I know. At the end of I the know. day, right? I mean, I mean, we we always we always need a ball of yarn Pretty to figure crazy, out how man. to untangle it and throw energy and attention and resources at it. So, you know, I'm not not trying to go down the tinfoil hat, you know, conspiracy rabbit hole, but I I think there is some some truth to this in terms of they don't necessarily, you know, if everybody's happy, healthy and thriving, um, then there's no need to to lean on the government. And you, you mm. can just talk about California right now. I mean, California and, and San Diego specifically is seeing upwards of 8,000 illegal immigrants coming over a day. And I saw a video, I wish I could have pulled it up. There was a video in New York City of a handful of, of women from the Bronx that were pissed because their kids haven't been able to go to school for weeks because now every single hotel in certain areas of New York City are getting filled by these illegal immigrants coming over and now they are at full occupancy and they're actually opening up and taking over schools, public schools. And so when you think about I'm not anti-immigration, by the way. Let me just start there. I'm anti-illegal immigration. Our country was built on the backs of amazing, hardworking, culturally diverse immigrants. So to sit here and act like we can't allow people to come into America, like if you're one of those people, shut the hell up. Like I just, that it's such an ignorant thing to say. That being said, we have systems and processes and laws for a reason. When you see places like New York City get completely overrun and the community and the people who contribute, who live there, who have their families there, those get overrun and displaced. That's a problem, right? When you see communities in San Diego or in Texas getting overrun and overwhelmed, and now the people who rely on social programs, rely on some of these housing components, rely on the community to get their food or some of their basic necessities. And you've got people coming over illegally and almost being, I mean, there was, a, I forget what video it was, but there's this very proactive, um, you know, kind of boisterous leader that is very aggressively, you know, touting illegal immigration. And he was marching with like, 20,000 people. And there's a video of him saying that he literally does this a couple times a month in different spots around the country. And he knows the border patrol. They love Joe Biden because they're literally getting incentivized to come over. And I'll wrap up on this. California is a perfect example. 
we're struggling to give basic health care to a lot of the residents. We're struggling to give, you know, the proper housing support to the citizens of California who pay tax dollars. And yet we're coming over and inviting people to come through. We're now giving them health care. We're now giving them money to go and have a legal you know, gender affirming sex changes. I mean, these are some of the types of policies, right, that I believe certain administrations or political organizations and groups are incentivizing to get more of their base to vote for them. And the more we can give you things that you're not getting elsewhere and you don't have to go through these processes and checks and balances. I mean, you go through TSA. I've seen signs on TSA. I have to show my ID to get through TSA. If you're an illegal immigrant, nah, no problem. Just come on board. Literally. I mean, that's, 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 that's a fact. Go check it out. So wow. these are some of the things that I think people are starting to get very concerned about. And now at a state level, when you see places like Texas or Florida, right, starting to push back on some of these things going, hey, we don't want that in our state. We're not going to allow that and tolerate that in our state. Now you literally have the federal government and Supreme Court fighting against states. And this is up on the screen that Charlie Kirk wrote this. And whether you like him or you don't like him, he brings some very interesting topics and discussions to the forefront because he says, you know, whether we agree or disagree, the second we stop having conversations, whether that's about politic disagreements, whether that's about marriage disagreements, whether that's about business disagreements, that's when things get dangerous and violent, right? That's when we start breaking down and being unproductive. And so he just, you know, I'll just read this verbatim. Never thought I'd see the day where the federal government actively fights a state all the way up to the Supreme Court to expedite the illegal invasion of America, and they win. And he said, I'm angry, but I'm also sad for what this means for our future. The America you pass down to your kids will not resemble the America you grew up in, which, I mean, there's always changes happening. So I, I take that with a grain of salt, but it's going to be more crowded, more impoverished, more expensive, and less trusting, but with more crime, more filth, and less in common. And I think we're seeing little signs of that today. Mm -hmm. And basically, his point was, Texas said, Joe Biden, your Border Patrol is literally cutting our fences and inviting people to come in. Nah, we're taking over our state. Your federal you know, government agents can get out of our way. And we're going to protect our border because our towns and our state are being overrun. And this is not how we want to run our state. And literally, they took it all the way up to the Supreme Court and fought them securing their own state border. Like, to me, that is writing on the wall, going, give me the logic of why you wouldn't want a state at, at the level that we've given them power to do what they do over governance of their citizens. And you're over here fighting against your own state and the own protection of your border. It, it was very... Uh, interesting, right? Because I mean, that's essentially what this whole lawsuit was over. And I think that this is a, I think it's a very interesting time and in why some of these issues are becoming so prevalent now and so concerning for people on what the, the Democratic, you know, administration is pushing aggressively, that people 
are now starting to look at Orange Man, who they hated and who they despised and who they couldn't even, you know, consider ever voting for are going, you know what? I don't care about his delivery anymore. I don't care if, you know, he looks uh, the way that bothers me or says this or, or said this in the past. I care about the stuff that he's fighting against now more than I care about my emotions and dislike for this individual. And I think that is where we're starting to see the media shift in a very big way and Wall Street shift in a very big way. And we're hearing more and more stuff coming out of Davos of people and world leaders going, Trump's going to be the next guy in. Because why? We're so sick and tired of the policies that we've seen get enacted and play out and you can't argue with results and policy is at the root of all of this and i think people are getting fed up and they're going to start voting based on policy instead of this pandering propaganda bullshit that many people have bought into over the last four years enough said thank you very much for listening look there it is i mean mikey matt right i mean matt you said that perfectly i think that it is it is very clear that America is being decisive here. And whether you agree with Donald Trump or not, I think he brings a little more chaos than I would like. But either way, it is clear that people want somebody who is going to cut the crap, cut the politicking and take action. You know, I had somebody tell me as a business owner, they were, I was like, you know, what, what do you think about all this immigration? People are just coming over. And they're like, sheesh, you're in manufacturing. You're a business owner. Isn't this good for you? Is it cheap labor? I'm like, what? How does that logic make sense? Just because I'm a business owner means that I want cheap labor coming in from wherever um, that's illegal. It actually creates more liability for a business owner. It's ruining our cities. Um, you know, I've, I'm in LA right here right now. Um, I've traveled to San Francisco. I've traveled to New York. I mean, these I just was talking to a guy yesterday who hit, who does a lot of sales in Baltimore. He is unwilling to go to Baltimore anymore to sell product. So, you know, it is it is a concern that we cannot travel into these cities and feel um feel the joy that these cities used to have and how they were thriving and how they used to enjoy. But, you know, Maddie, you said uh you mentioned Davos. I really recommend everybody who's listening to listen to this Melee speech. I don't know if you guys listened to it. I put it in the chat. Um, such a, such a powerful speech It's about 22 minutes. Uh, we'll put it in the show okay, notes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a long, it's a long speech, but you know, he is, he does such a great job talking about, um, how capitalism is the formula and how all these elites are using power and control to become socialist. And we got to just protect libertarianism and, and allow and capitalism allow- to thrive and just get out of the way. and. I listened to it twice because he's such an eloquent guy. He's so smart. Um, But I I think that there's a really big shift, and we've talked about it here. People are waking up. We're just not going to accept it anymore, and and people want safety. And we're not talking extreme concepts here. We want people to thrive. We want people to feel safe. We want people to have health care. We want people to have uh, the ability to have affordable housing and raise their families and eat nutritious food. Like we're, We're not talking about and for the majority of Americans. So uh, just a fun situation right now. Let's kind of pivot to the global business environment. Um, Mikey, I'm going to turn it over to you. U.S. imports 
Mexico has now become the largest importer uh, into the United States. And actually, I was surprised by this article because I actually thought that China had a larger share of this. Um, and maybe from this, we'll pivot into some shipping challenges that I'm experiencing in, in the overall global trade environment. So why don't you take us here? You know, what, what's interesting about this, and I want to kind of correlate and tie the two together. Um, I, I made a comment in the chat as, as Maddie was um, talking. And the reality is, and I, I said this probably six weeks back or whatever, I actually firmly believe that the United States is on a mission and, you know, Republican, Democrat aside, um, when COVID happened and we had the issues with not being able to get the things that we needed from a supply chain perspective, and I won't beat this because we discussed it on a previous show, but I actually think that there, I think it's, I think it's vital to our future that we bring things back to the US. And Ash, you were talking about manufacturing, your friend saying, you know, as a manufacturer, isn't this a good thing? And there's such a, there's, there's two sides to this coin. I mean, I made a comment about Kerry Lake in, in Arizona. I have a builder friend there and he said that, or not Kerry Lake, sorry, the governor, Kerry Lake ran against her, but the current governor of Arizona, which I'm a huge fan of Arizona, but I saw this writing on the wall during COVID. And then when the election was happening and they're talking about raising well, they, they did. They passed a law to raise taxes. And this, this whole law was covered as an education bill. And it raised taxes on people making $500,000 a year or more um, by 4%. And I started seeing all of this. And it's like, I don't think that people really understand the economic. I know they don't understand the economics of this. And bringing it back to the Democratic governor. So Democrats are supposed to be for the people, right? Affordability and those that are so it's, it's counter capitalism, but the reality, you take a democratic governor, like who's in Arizona right now, and she's making it really hard to build. They're trying to make it impossible to issue new permits as you guys were discussing with like California and everything. And if, if you just come back to the simplicity, the simplicity of it, if you have less housing, if you make it harder to build housing, then it makes it harder on the average person. I just don't understand why people don't get this. I made a comment in the chat. I said, well, if we start buying more from Mexico, then Mexicans will not want to come here as much. And I, I was jokingly um, saying that, but Ash, you made such a great point about being in manufacturing. Doesn't that benefit you? The crazy thing is, is the government as employers requires us to verify, you know, yeah. citizenship or at least that they have a visa or whatever. It's such a two-edged sword because yes, yeah. anybody come in. Oh, but by the way, as a government, we're going to require you to make sure that they have a social security number or they have a right to work. As a business owner, sometimes you want to just throw your hands in the air. And then people wonder why like business owners, you know, tend to lean this way. It's like, well, on one hand, you're telling me that I have to do X, Y, Z, but then on the other hand, you're saying, let them all in. And so like, I love what Maddie said about, I'm all for, I'm pro-immigration, but doing it in the right way. Sorry, I, I just had to kind of cap oh, that. My God, I, have into... friends, I have friends that have like, okay, thrown up their hands. We have big manufacturing facilities. And one day the DEI or whatever the agency shows up, the immigration agency show up to do checks. And one day you got to let go of 60% of your labor force in a manufacturer. It's like, what do, you, what do you expect us to do, right? So all of a sudden now you're, you're out of business. How are you going to go replace that workforce in a manufacturing facility? So- we definitely need to bring things back to America. 
Um, I'm still a skeptic to see if that's even possible, Mikey. Um, knowing in in my perspective, but you know, it's it's meant to be seen. But let's talk about imports. We are still uh, an import focused country. We still have a trade deficit from that perspective. I firmly believe that we'll never be full manufacturing in the U.S. But I think the reason why you're seeing Mexico tick up so much is because, you know, I, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but even the new, um, well, it's not new anymore, but the Inflation Reduction Act, there was so many bills in there that required a certain percentage of everything that qualifies for the EV credits and all of these credits that are in that act to be assembled in the U.S., not manufactured in the U.S., but assembled in the U.S. And I think as investors we need, and business owners, by the way, we need to be watching and paying attention to this because Mexico and Canada, but more so Mexico, is going to be a linchpin in this. And this is why I think you're seeing this tick up because when things are manufactured in China, we have all this volatility with China, shipping, costs, everything else. But when things are manufactured in Mexico, they can be shipped and assembled in the United States. So I agree with you, Ash. I don't think that we're ever going to go completely back to onshoring, you know, that we're going to be the United States that we were in the early 1900s, that we're going to have a new industrial revolution. But I think, again, just from an investment standpoint, I think industrial storage and assembly is a huge investment opportunity because so much is going to be manufactured in Mexico and maybe full cars aren't going to get delivered from Mexico, but parts are going to get delivered from there. And not just cars. I think this is going to relay into all kinds of aspects. Things are going to start coming out of Mexico. And I wouldn't be surprised if in five years you don't see that Mexico is a 20% or 30% partner in this graph with the United States of America. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're producing all kinds of stuff in Mexico right now. And there's an especially post-COVID. There are factories spinning up every major auto manufacturer, technology, electronics. Um, they're just spinning up so much manufacturing. Ironic, you know, there's a really, Mexico not only is educating people for manufacturing, but they also have a very quality education system against proper popular belief, like very intelligent, curious, young population that is well-educated, that want to work. Um, and China is going the absolute opposite direction. Not that they're not educated, but the younger population in China has no interest in working in manufacturing, zero interest. And so they are just aging themselves out of what sort of made them China. And so there's de definitely going to be some major shifts. Maddie, any thoughts on this? No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't think there's ever a time that we'll go back to that industrial gritty revolution. I think we've all been spoiled too, too much, yeah. you know, and, and we're so intertwined with technology and we're so intertwined with so many global manufacturing networks that we have to really kind of play the game of chess and, and how we would either pivot or, or unravel that or, or just a, adapt a new model and system. But I do think there are many, manufacturing verticals that we have gotten over our skis on and letting go too much of. And therefore, there's some opportunity to reel some of that back in. But as you talked about, Ash, I think this is a 
cultural uh, thing in terms of the DNA of, of certain societies and cultures. And our DNA is no longer we get in with our hands and we've got soot and, you know, coal and stuff. dust we just don't, and dirt yep. all over ourselves after working a 10-hour day. We're a bunch of prima donnas in America and we have learned to leverage technology and success and capitalism to our advantage. But we've done that at the expense of certain industries in our economy that we have decided to go offshore with. And I think with technology and the global economy, you know, and, and access to a lot of these individuals and organizations that can fulfill those needs, there's no reason why we're going to want to callous these hands, right? Is, is the mentality of a lot of the youth versus let's get in and build shit and do hard things. It's just not a part of America's DNA anymore. And so I think that is, uh, yeah. is, is in some ways a good thing because it keeps us operating and tackling different challenges in different capacities. But I also think it's a dangerous thing and that we still need to have components of that in our cultural American USA DNA. And so it's an interesting topic. It's one that I'm not super well versed on, but when it comes to the identity and ideology of, you know, um, some of those, you know, discussions that we're having, America don't got that, you know, anymore. And, yeah. and I think that is a little bit scary, but also I think it, it says, how advanced we are and you know there's there's other opportunities and, and challenges that we're looking at tackling um but there's some things that you just can't ignore anymore that i think are, are part of the discussion now yeah i mean i think look we have to play to our strengths and i think what it, one of the things about globalization is that you know it is important to learn what to trade what to buy and what to sell with people that are doing a better job than you <clears throat> and that can provide those goods and services at cheaper prices for the betterment of both societies. I think what's interesting, what's going on now in the last six, seven, eight years, you know, make America great again, is this, this concept, it, it'll, we almost take that concept a little too far where we just need to be isolationist and we need to make everything in America. And, and we've proven that that's not possible. We're not a society that can do that. So there is this fine balance of knowing how can we continue globalization, but also, you know, protect each other and work, co you know, cohesively. The there's definitely dynamics going on in China, which I want to touch. You know, before I get there, um, the the logistics and freight environment is so important. Um, there's a situation going on in the Suez Canal. And the Red Sea, it's been going kind of unraveling the last couple of weeks with all this terror stuff. The Suez Canal and the Red Sea, which are really critical uh, freight openings, freight lanes to move a significant amount of commodity throughout the world, um, mostly from Southeast Asia into Europe, into Africa, sometimes to the United States on the East Coast. Um, those lanes are being shut down or clogged. The Panama Canal is actually running out of water. So the amount of vessels that are going through the Panama Canal is actually significantly reduced as well. And so, for example, we ship a lot to the East Coast and you can't ship through the Panama Canal. So you have to go around, you have to go from Southeast Asia, you have to go east, sorry, you have to go west, not east, or through the Pacific, and you have to go around 
Africa to come to the East Coast. So you can imagine how much farther that is than just going through the Pacific Ocean, going through the Panama Canal and going up to Baltimore or what have you, um, or to Mar Maryland or something like that. So the time and the cost is may seem insignificant, but for global trade, when we add those costs and timelines, is significant inflation. There are significant delays in product moving, and economies really are more dependent than we are proud to admit in how efficient and how important the efficiency of supply chain is. The supply chain is not broken, but when these global things happen, it really affects the way that things move. And we are so dependent. I mean, you're looking at how much billions of dollars of product we're moving from all these different places. One of the benefits of Mexico is that you don't have to cross water. You can just put stuff on a truck and you can bring it across. So I think what's fascinating about Mexico, if Mexico can get their, their stuff straight and they can get organized and they can really build discipline in manufacturing um, and really focus on this, they have their number one customer sitting on the apartment right above them, right? And I think there's a huge advantage in transit and transportation and time in which China, Japan, Vietnam, Taiwan, India do not have, logistically speaking. Right now, it is cheaper to bring a container from China all the way across the ocean, across the world to, let's say, Houston, than it is to get a truck from Guadalajara to Houston just based on supply and demand, right? So it's not necessarily about miles or fuel or whatever. It's just purely supply and demand. Once that supply and demand curve starts to change, um, you have more truckers, you have more drivers, manufacturing starts to increase. You're going to see these prices start to fall. And um, yeah, so Mexico is definitely in the fight. One of the things I wanted to talk about, I don't want to riff off too long, and um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is this aging population of, of China, because the population of China is, for the last, since the 1980s, 1990s, has been just a behemoth of manufacturing power. And I want to show this picture really quick. China's pension system is buckling under the age population. Firstly, I just wanted to share this beautiful picture. This is me, Mike, Matt, and Aaron in about 40 yeah. or 50 years. Can you guys tell me who's who here? I mean, I want to be the guy in the red jumpsuit. That guy looks baller. I was going to say, I'm, I'm the guy on the right. You're the, you're the guy on the right with, with a gray jumpsuit? Yep. I'm definitely Mooch is the guy wrong. in the second that has something to say, huh? Huh? He has something to say. That guy's got some eyes here. I love this picture so much. But no, just kidding aside, I mean, seriously, guys, like the when I walk through the factories in China and we are producing product, um, there's probably no one under 50. And what happens to China? They're having this huge real estate bubble. Um, you have a young population that no longer wants to manufacture goods anymore. They want to just be in tech or finance or services, um, highly educated, but diminishing population growth. It's going to be really fascinating to what happens in the world in the next 10, 20 years horizon. And we are in for some really big shifts in global trade, uh, globalization. Um, and I think is one of the reasons why China and I and I 
don't want to prophesize this, but I, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think China is being a little more sensitive about going after Taiwan so aggressively because um, they can't afford the country to keep them, the world to basically shut them out for the next 10 years. So any thoughts on that? I don't have a ton to add to that. I'm just very interested to see how as one, you know, I think so much, and this is more of a philosophical statement, you know, for and, and reflective than it is, you know, a stance or a fact. But I think from the oldest person right now to the youngest person right now, the the world for the older generation is looked so different in so many ways at so many times of their life. And, and I know that will be the same for, you know, my kids when, when they get there. But I think so much has changed because of technology. And it's, it's an interesting discussion and dynamic to see how we will integrate in the new and younger generations and what they bring to the workforce, what they bring to the economy, what they bring with ideology versus what, you know, some of these older aging out, you know, populations have kind of uh, transplanted and left with us, or if those will be forgotten when they pass on. Um, so I just think it's, we're going through some very interesting cultural shifts. Um, and, you know, the, the demographics for older generations and what they've seen and experienced and what's changed over their life has been so dramatic and drastic. I'm just very interested to see what that's going to look like as they age out and, you know, new and younger generations come in and are driving and dictating what the future of the world is going to look like and and how it probably yeah. is going to be completely drastically different in another 10, 20, 30 years with technology and how it's getting, you know, rolled into everything that we do. So uh, not a ton to add there, but just very interested to see what this next decade looks like. Um, and, and how technology drastically changes what we think is normal and forward thinking today is probably going to look like peanuts and, you know, uh, very simple and boring compared to what it's going to look like in another 10 years. I'll, I'll jump in on that. And I love what you just said, Maddie, because, you know, there's this narrative that's been going on for a while that as China's, you know, population ages, that they're going to be um, I guess that they're going to lose, um, the ability to compete. And Ash, you were just kind of talking about that from a manufacturing perspective, but looping it back into what Maddie just said, and then bringing it back to the conversation that we started with today in technology. I mean, China's one of the leading countries in the world when it comes to tech and I'll have Tim play this here in a minute, but even, um, not just in tech that we think about, you know, whether it's AI or efficiencies in manufacturing, they've been super efficient in manufacturing because of cheap labor. But the thing that nobody ever talks about is, you know, the technology behind that manufacturing too. And I think that China's leading the charge, or I shouldn't say leading the charge, but I think China, they're not stupid. And they understand that their population is aging. And it was interesting because Jamie Gruber from the Tribe of Millionaires podcast, um, who's from GoBundance as well, he had um, Andre Bustamante, who's an ex-CIA agent on the show, and Jamie, Jamie wanted to ask, or he asked Andre about, 
this whole narrative around um, the aging population in China and how China's not going to be a force in 20 years, 40 years, 70 years, because, you know, a half of their population is going to be dead and they're not having more kids, which is the narrative that we've bought into. But what Andre said, he said, I think it's going to be the opposite. And I don't remember why he got into it, but he was talking about the young up and coming. It's a new regime. It's a new generation. They're going to bring technology. And Tim, play this clip really quick. like real life yeah. Legos right there. Yeah, it took them 18 hours to put this thing, 18 or 28 hours or something for them wow. to construct this. That's yeah, it's insane. And and the way that they, um, the way that they built it, um, it's it's constructed so that it can fold up. You'll, you'll see this here in a minute, but it folds up into pieces and it can fit in sea containers. And so they can literally ship these all over the world. All over the and world. And so... You know, this again ties into our early conversation, but China, the one, one more thing that I want to say on this too, they don't give a shit about their people, which is a scary thing. But you know what, if this was the United States or even more so like Japan, we had a conversation about Japan and the honor that they have for their elders and the people, but China doesn't care. So when we talk about like this aging demographic and how are they going to survive and there, there's a there's a double-edged sword to this because I don't know how much China really cares about keeping their elders alive longer. You know, how are they going to survive? I, By the way, I, I don't know enough to speak about this. This is maybe just a, a skewed, um, I guess, interpretation that I have, but I don't know if they care. And the reality is that as their population ages, I think that technology and their ability to compete I think they're going to be the forefront on things like this. And again, just from an investment standpoint, when I originally wanted to share this, I was just thinking from investment opportunities, can you imagine being able to assemble a, a building like that in 18 hours? With that kind imagine of the cost. I know. Imagine the cost that that goes down and it, it, it ripples in so many other things, travel costs. Like, you know, imagine how long it takes us to build a building like that in the United States of America and how many hours are spent you know, people just driving to the job site, getting there, transporting material. It's crazy. It's insane. And Ash, back to your point about even shipping. Imagine if this stuff could get shipped to Mexico and assembled there and then shipped on containers on trucks to New York and a building, an apartment complex that was, I don't know, 25 stories tall can be built in like 18 hours. It's crazy. just insane. Yeah, I mean, let's wrap. But so, so many amazing topics today. Um, definitely, I mean, if you guys heard what we just said, there's there's some really big tide shifting. And we're not, I think, why we're trying to understand all these things is not to be doom and gloom, is to, number one, look for facts, look for trends, but also to understand how those can create opportunities, how they can affect our decisions as we run our businesses. Um, and, and just as, as we make better decisions. So I love you guys. Great episode um, for the listener. Thank you guys so much for listening to the King's Table on behalf of myself, 
the sage Mike Ayala, and the hero of hospitality, Maddie A. And of course, our good friend who had to miss today, Aaron Amuchastegui. Thanks so much for listening. Continue to subscribe to listening to the YouTube channel and leave us comments so that we can continue to engage with you. Until next time, see you later. Peace out. Love you guys.